Amen. Hey, let me just encourage you to stay standing for the reading of God's Word uh, as we come to a short uh, transitional portion of Scripture, and I'm going to actually read both uh, today's text and uh, we're going to just touch on a little bit of uh, 3.16, which is our Christmas Eve text. So if you didn't know that, get yourself ready for Christmas Eve, 1 Timothy 3.16. I'll read it all the way down. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. Paul writes, I I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. That's Jesus. Vindicated by the Spirit. Seen by angels. Proclaimed among the nations. Believed on in the world. Taken up in glory. Church, this is our story. You may be seated. Good morning. Oh, good to be in the Lord's house. Amen. So good to be in the Lord's house together. Hey, if you have a Bible, why don't you grab it? We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We just continue to kind of mow down this book of the Bible. And uh, it's situating itself very fittingly for a Christmas message. Okay. When you look at 1 Timothy 3.16, it, it just smacks of Christmas. And so it just was so interesting of the Lord. It was like, hey, do we pause and do we do a Christmas series in the month of December? And we've done that in the past, but we thought, no, you know what? It's ending so perfectly. The chapter is going to fall right on Christmas Eve. Let's just keep going for it. And I'm glad we are. And listen, there are a lot of ways to celebrate Christmas, but the best way to celebrate Christmas is simply by opening God's word and letting God speak to his church every single week. That is the most effective, most important thing that we could be doing on a given basis. And so we're just going to continue. We believe that this book that we're opening is the word of God. And when it is preached faithfully, it is God's word to you. So you can imagine the responsibility and the weight that I feel to make sure I'm rightly uh, uh, conveying and handling the truth of the word of God. Because it is important that what gets done up here is truly God's word to you. And so I'm excited to say that um, we have a great text in front of us, and um, we're going to just jump right in here. My name's Scott, by the way. I'm the lead pastor here at Doxa Church, and it's a joy to have you here. I hope you come back on Friday, right? Friday? Yeah, I'm excited about Friday. It's going to be awesome. And and bring people, you know. And if we have standing room only, is anyone going to have a problem with standing room only in this place? Like, we have 600 reservations, but we have 900 chairs in this place, so it's to give us a little bit of flexibility here. But listen, don't not, how about that, don't not come to a service because it's sold out. Just show up. And then give your seats up if you're like a solid Christian to someone else who looks confused. Right? Come on, come on, come on, come on. Somebody tell me they're going to do that if they see that. Like head on a swivel, someone doesn't belong, I'm getting up, your family sit here so they can hear about Jesus. Amen? Let's do that. Let's do that. 
Okay, let's jump in here. Title of the message this morning, God's House, God's Rules. Parents, how many can relate? Was that a laugh because that's like a thing? That was such a loud laugh. (laughs) I love it. God's house, God's rules. Listen, we have come to a transitional point in the book of 1 Timothy as we approach verses 14 and 15, which we're going to study today. And so, it, it, you know, sometimes it's hard because you're taking books of the Bible, and I'm going chunk by chunk, and we're going verse by verse, and it's happening over a long period of time. And so sometimes it can get a little bit confusing, like, what's the big picture, right? What's going on in this book? And so let me just take you back. Let's see if we can journey our way through the first three chapters and get ourselves up to where we are right now. That's always helpful to do. And if you've not been with us, you're going to get the sense of where we are uh, in chapter 3. So chapter Chapter 1, Paul comes out of the gates, and you can look at it if you want, and Paul's saying, Timothy, Timothy now is a young pastor, probably in his mid-30s, isn't that interesting, and he is calling uh, Timothy to stay at this church in Ephesus, this beloved church, Paul loved this church, Paul spent time at this church, Paul helped plant this church, this church was in some serious problems though, some serious trouble, because they had shifted the message of the gospel ever so slightly, uh, but significantly, slightly in the sense that people weren't really picking up on it, but significant in the sense that anytime you move away from a gospel that is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, however slight that change may be, it is a significant change. And so Paul's called it out. He actually calls it heterodidascalon, different teaching. And what they were doing, see, was they were taking the Bible and they were using the Old Testament as a means to self-righteousness and to self-salvation instead of a mirror by which they see from it so very clearly that they are sinners in need of salvation by grace. And so they were able to fight and quarrel over certain parts of the Old Testament and how it basically solidified their own standing before a living God, not needing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's like, wait a minute, I have a problem with that. And Paul points to his own salvation and says, if that's the case, then nobody gets saved because the standard is high and grace is our only option and the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners not the self-righteous. And sinners get saved by grace, God's free gift through faith in Jesus Christ, his person and his work. He is the second person of the Trinity. God himself take on human flesh who lived a life we didn't live perfectly, died a death we should have substitutionally and rose to give us the gift we could not otherwise obtain, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus, full forgiveness of all your sins. How? trusting in Jesus Christ, okay? When you shipwreck that message, you walk away from the faith. And Paul had to intervene into the Ephesian church because apparently there were a couple elders in the church who were teaching this non-gospel gospel. And he had to remove them. Evidently, they had shipwrecked their faith on this bad teaching. And all of a sudden, by chapter 2, where he starts and says there's bad teaching going on in chapter 1, by chapter 2, we start to see the bad fruit of that teaching. Okay, whatever you believe bears fruit in your life. We'll see what you believe by the way you live, by the way you act, by the way you think out loud. And so Paul begins to address that and say, because of the bad teaching, because the gospel's not on the forefront, because they have this works-based salvation kind of woven in there, you have problems. What do they have? Well, in chapter 2, they had men getting into arguments with one another. 
right? Right in the middle of the corporate gathering. Instead of being men of prayer as they should be leading the church in that way. You had women in defiance of the place that they should serve and occupy in the church. You had unqualified individuals who were leading in the two offices that the church was given, namely the office of elder and the office of deacon. And by the time we get there, Paul gets us to this place in 1 Timothy chapter 3 where he's got this transitional like reminder for us that the church, no doubt, needed to get its act together. And the truth is, is that the church is constantly needing to get its act together. We need to be getting our act together on a constant basis. We need to be reforming ourselves according to the standard of the word of God. And so the question is, what do we do when we need to do that? Where do we turn? And Paul is so interesting in the way he does this. He takes us back to the basics. He goes back to our identity. He goes back, church, to remembering who we are as his church. He goes back to something that we constantly battle over. And I will tell you this. This is the most common battle or, or one of the most common battles in the Christian life. It is a battle to remember your identity in Christ. Okay? You and I suffer on a regular basis from identity amnesia. If you start sensing that the wheels are falling off of your Christian faith, I will show you that it is directly related to what you believe God believes about you. What does God say about you in his word? Do you believe what is revealed therein? When we lose sight of our identity, things start to change. Paul says that's where they need to get. All of this that has been written, both up to this point and what's going to continue in 1 Timothy, depends on them understanding their identity as the church. And so we're reminded afresh of this, and here's the big idea for this morning. Our identity in Christ informs our activity as the church. Okay, our identity in Christ informs our activity as the church. Get identity right, activity will follow. Get identity wrong, activity will be wonky. This is how this works. Loved ones, listen, this is how it works individually, and this is how it works as a body. We have a corporate responsibility to be the church, and you have an individual responsibility to be a Christian and a member of the church. So we need this. And thank God Paul provides it. And he gives us three descriptions of our identity that are supposed to shape the way our activity ought to be run in the church. And I want to show you the first one right now. The first one is this, the church as God's family. The church as God's family. We get to verse 14 and he says this, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So you have to understand Paul's personal heart. He loves this church. He's been with this church for uh, years before, right? And he wants so badly to be in person with them. This message that he has to give them is a message that he would prefer to give face-to-face in person. But you can sense by his reading and even the language that he's using that that idea that he, not, you know, get in person with them may not be happening as fast as he was thinking it would happen. 
And so he's got this issue going, what am I supposed to do? I have a message that I don't want to send by email. I want to send it in person. I don't want to send it by letter. I want to do it face to face. But he had this growing sense of likelihood that he would be delayed. And so he needed, he sensed the importance, the urgency of these things needed to be there. So if I may be delayed, this message cannot be delayed. I may not be able to get there as soon as I want. This message has to get there as soon as possible. That's what he's kind of getting into today. And I can, I could just hear his heart in this, you know. It's like there's something special about planting a church and the, and the heartstrings that are pulled and the love that you feel for a place and a people. And Paul had that. And Paul's like a missional maniac, right? I mean, that guy's everywhere. He's planting churches all over the place. He's preaching the gospel so much. I mean, it's Paul, right? I mean, it's crazy. And yet on his heart, on a regular basis, were these churches that he had planted. And here's the guy. I mean, he had gone through the ringer, hadn't he? 2 Corinthians 11 talks about the fact that he was, you know, shipwrecked at sea, basically almost drowned. He was in danger all the time, danger from river, danger from robbers, danger from people that were against the message of of Jesus Christ. But what's interesting is at the end of that section in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, and apart from all these other dangers that he has experienced, sleepless nights, on and on he goes, he says, apart from these other things, He says, there is this daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Like, I just, I read that differently now than I read that 10 years ago. It's like for all the conglomeration of stuff that that the pastor faces as he wants to multiply ministry and see the gospel go forth, The more and more Paul planted churches, the more and more he was like, every church he planted, it was like his heart was there. And he's seeing this church that he loved. He's seeing just it fall apart at the seams. He's seeing the very gospel message that should be the center of the church just completely falling apart. And so he's like, listen, I might delay and I would love to get there. In fact, we don't have actually any evidence at all that Paul ever actually got to Ephesus after this. So he says, I'm going to write because it's so important that you get this. And praise God that he wrote this. Because in the providence of God, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have exactly what Paul wanted to give to his church. And because it was given to the Ephesian church and has been maintained because of the providential work of the Spirit of God, we get this letter so clear and so helpful to us in the 21st century And in what way is this helpful? Well, notice what he says here. He says, if I delay, I want you to know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Paul wanted the church set right. He wanted them to have a how-to manual. He didn't want it to be confusing how it was to go in the church. He wanted the church to faithfully exposit what was there and apply it to the life of the church. What's funny is 20... In the 21st century, we, we seem to have struggles with what's here. So far, one of the things that I found about this letter in teaching it is how profoundly straightforward it is. Unless you don't like what it says. Or you overcomplicate it 
by letting a bunch of people from ivory towers and a lot of letters before their name convince you that this doesn't actually say what it says in the authority that it says it in. And, and that's a problem. Because it is straightforward, and this is supposed to be a how-to manual, right? Uh, we love how-to stuff, right? If you and I could boil our relationship of, with God down into how-tos, we would all do it. And there are many parts of the Bible that are not how-tos. It's more, this is what God does. This is what he did. This is who he's like. But we do get some how-tos, and when we do, we should apply those, amen? Or in other words, God's house, God's, tell me, rules, Okay, now you may have heard that from a family member, okay? How many have said that? My house, my rules. Come on, come on. Don't be shy. Got some half hands. I saw a couple like this. Okay, yeah, bold. Thank you. Bold. My house, my rules. Now, parents love you, but sometimes it's possible that um, that's all you say, and so you don't connect it to anything, and, and then kids have a hard time understanding, like, I'm just supposed to listen to you because you're an adult, and there is a sense in which... That's true, all right? There is authority, and God has delegated it. You know, and my kids, it's like, and who's the boss in the house? I'll be like, God. I'll be like, nah. God set me up as your authority. Delegation right here, big guy, okay? So they can be all technical all they want, but there is that authority, and that's true, and that's good. But one of the things that's important we do as parents when we say my house, my rules, is we explain who they are. See, when God says God's house, God's rules, he doesn't leave us in a place where we don't remember who we are. In fact, I want to show you what he says. He tells us this is how we ought to behave in the household of God. He's giving us our identity even as he's explaining our activity. Come with me. I'm going to show you this. The word for household here is the word for house. And I believe he's using it the same way that he does in chapter 3, verse 4, when he's talking about elders needing to manage their household can I tell you what I don't believe that means? I don't believe Paul was saying that elders have to manage the wood that their house is made out of. I mean, in a sense, you probably should like watch to make sure the house doesn't fall on people, right? But I don't think that's what Paul was getting after. How many would agree with that? When he says to manage this household, how many would say he's not talking about the structure? He's not talking about the stucco, He's talking about what? The people in the house. So it's translated household, but the word is house. It's the same way it's used with deacons in chapter 3, verse 12. It is the same concept. He's talking about you ought to take care of those in your house. And who's in the house? The family. You're supposed to be husbands of one wife, elders. You're supposed to be managing and stewarding your children well. These are the responsibilities. When you go forward to 1 Timothy chapter 5, he really brings it home because it's clear in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, that we are to engage one another like family. You ready? Older men, how are you going to treat them? Like dads. Younger men, like brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters. <laughs> Here's what he's saying when he says, I want you to know how you ought to behave in the household of God. He's saying, listen, there's some activity that's supposed to come out of this place that's supposed to be in this place, but it's because your identity, you, Christian, us, loved ones, we are family. <laughs> right? 
as the great theologian Sister Sledge laid down for us a long time ago. Get up, everybody, and dance. We, we are family. Think about that for a second. You got some stuff that you should be doing because it's part of what you do as a family. But it's not just that. You're not just a part of any family. You, loved ones, are a part of the household of tell me. Anyone want to say that with a slight bit more enthusiasm? I'll give, I'll give it to you again because it gets smattered, right? We have to have like a count or something here. This is profound. You blew right past reading this, and this is stunning implication for us. So, 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 uh, what part, what family are we a part of? One, two, three. That's stunning. That's stunning. Listen, I, I don't know what kind of family you do come from, or maybe you don't come from, or uh, uh, maybe your family is awesome. And you're like, I've just been so blessed. And you know what? That family is just a perfect picture of like the something greater that it is to be a part of the family of God. But maybe your story is my family life has been rough. I don't feel like I've ever really had a family or been connected in some meaningful way to a family. Listen to me. You are, if you are in Christ, if you have turned from your sin, put your faith in Jesus Christ, trusted in the free gift of salvation given to you, you are part of God's family. And this is the wonder of the week of Christmas is that a Savior was born to die and rise so that you could be with God in his family. John 1 says it so well. It's simple, guys. Like, well, what do you mean? What do you mean, faith? To all who did receive him, who believed in his name. You believe in his name, who he is, what he's done. Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God who were not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is a work that only God can do. This is a work that is not determined by some emotional moment in your life where you slipped up a hand at five years old. That's not what this is. This is a radical regeneration of, of, of new life. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone and the new is come. And that new creation life bears its fruit initially in that you see Christ for who he is. And you run after him with everything that you have. Like the prodigal son returning to the father, you jet after Jesus. And being in Christ by faith, God says, you are a part of my family. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is awesome. And so, with the privilege of being a part of the family of God, there are certain things that God's family members do. I'll put it like this. Um, so we added Pastor Stu. Um, and he's been a blessing to our church. And Stu's English. Okay? 
And Stu and I are buddies because um, we're both football fans, not, not American football, uh, though we um, would debate over probably what he calls football, we call soccer, et cetera, et cetera. We're both fans of soccer teams in England from the same town. He's a fan of a team called Everton, okay, which was the first team in Liverpool. Some years later, I am a fan of this team. This is the second and better team that came to <laughs> Liverpool. Now, what you will not find anyone in the Barton household, that nuclear home, wearing is the color red. This would not be found around one of his kids' necks. You want to know why? Because they're a Barton. And Bartons are Everton fans. Now, that being said, he's got some family members that have made the right decision. <laughs> and so a house divided, we know, will not stand. <laughs> but within his own house, listen, if you're going to be a son of stew you're going to be an Everton fan. You're going to wear blue. There are certain songs you're going to sing, and there's other ones you're not going to sing. There are certain ways you're going to act, and there are certain ways you're not going to act. When Liverpool scores a goal, you're going to be silent. When Everton scores a goal, you're going to see all of Stu's glory come out. You've never seen cheeks move like that as he's trying to exhale the amount of air of celebration as I watched him celebrate one goal that Everton scored in a game they got trounced in <laughs> by Liverpool. And it doesn't matter how many times they win, how many times they lose, we are the Bartons and we wear blue. We root for Everton. This is who we are. In the same way, when God says, you are part of my family, and as my family, this is who we are, and this is what we do. We walk in that with gladness because we know God's got our best intentions at heart. God has us. God is taking care of us. He's not trying to run us through this maze of good works to sort of please God. You already have his favor. You're not living the Christian life to try to please God over and over and over again like it's some sort of like quota you have to meet for the day. You have the favor of God. You are the only people that do. And so you don't live for it, you live from it. And your life shows it. In the way you live, in the way you speak, in the way you interact, it bears a resemblance to the family you're a part of. Does that make sense? Your behavior needs to bear that resemblance. If we're a part of the family of God, we need to act like it. Our convictions need to inform our conduct, right? The precepts of Scripture need to inform our practice. The beliefs that we have in light of the Word of God need to inform our behavior, doctrines to duties, word to walk. And when your walk meets what's in the Word, it says to a world that needs to know about Jesus, I'm part of the family of God. Because there's certain ways that we are to be that show that off. But that's not the only thing. It's amazing that that is here, though. There's three descriptions of our identity here. The first one is that our 
identity is that we are the church and the church is God's family. The second thing is we are the church and the church is God's assembly. The church is God's assembly. So he backs this up. This first statement about being the household of God, he adds to this, he further emphasizes by this clause that he uses, which says this, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, because this is where God's family is, which is the church of the living God. This is so awesome, guys. This is so awesome. What was implicit in the first statement is explicit in the second. God's house is his church. God's house is his church. Literally, this says the living God's church. This is so we might know how to behave in the household of God, which is the living God's church. You and I are the living God's church. The word ekklesia here is the word ek, which is the preposition out of, and kaleo is the called ones. You and I are the, it really is translated assembly or gathering, but in the context of the spiritual realities of the gospel, when he says that we are the church, we are the called out ones. We are the assembly of the called out ones of Christ. Peter would say it like this, called out of what, you say? He would say that you were called out of darkness, that you and I were called out of the kingdom of this world, out of the following of the ways of this world and all the darkness therein. We have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, and now by God's grace, you are a people with a last name, and an identity, all rallying around the work of Jesus, all because of the work of Jesus, now you can approach God as Father. And we are those gathered ones together of the living God. Paul, I love this phrase, Paul's going Old Testament on us. When he says, you are the living God's church, he's going Old Testament. And what he's saying when he says that is that Living God as in true God. Living God as in the only God. You are the assembly of the only God, of the true God. Over and against what? O over and against the falseness and deadness of the idols of this world. When you see this phrase used, it's often used like, for example, in the context of the promised land in anticipation of conquering the promised land in the book of joshua chapter 3 he says this says that here's how you shall know that the living god is among you he will drive out all of the ites you know what i'm talking about when i say ites if you just say ites then you don't have to worry about remembering every single one of them right because there's hittites and hivites and then once you say one in your head you're like wait was that the same one or were they two different ones? And you got the Parasites and the Girgashites and the Canaanites and the, right? So when I say ites, we get it, right? The God's going to expel the ites who are worshiping what? 
false idols so that you would be set apart. You would be different than the world around you. We are the true and only God's called out ones. You are the true and only God's called out ones. What favor has been bestowed on your life, Christian? What stunningly good news. Here's the first question I would probably be asking if I was actually paying attention to the sermon. Under my breath, in my head, I would probably be thinking, why me? Like if that thought is anywhere near your head, you're probably tracking with what I'm saying right now. I mean, this is, this is crazy. There are so many idols in the world. They, they would have walked into the town. You, if you had walked into the town at Ephesus in the first century, you would have seen, and I'm going to show you this in a second. I'm not going to show you it now. But they were worshipers. That city was worshipers. They worshiped this god. It had a male name and a female name, Artemis or Diana. It was built into the very culture of their city. It was rampant with idols. The truth is, is that every century since then has been rampant with idols, and now we're so sophisticated, we're so atheistic, we're so secularistic, we're so anti-supernatural, we're so humanistic, we're so all of those things that we think we've evolved around it, evolved beyond that, and yet I see religion everywhere people go. Because they're made in the image of God, and as much as they try to resist God, you worship. You just look like a worshiper. And so what he's saying, which is so interesting here, and here's what he's getting after. If you want to find God in a gathering today, like, who wouldn't want to find God if they could? You, you want to find God in a gathering today, let me tell you where it won't be. It won't be in an NFL stadium. It won't be in a nightclub. It won't be in a frat house. It won't be in a university. And don't come email me later and go, I found God in a frat house. I get, I get that that can happen. Okay, we find God in weird places. God finds us in some weird places. That's the truth. So hear me out before I get an email about that. It won't be in NFL stadiums. It's not going to be in nightclubs. It's not going to be in universities. It will not be in mosques. It will not be in temples. It will not be in shrines. It will not be in synagogues. If you are looking to find God in a gathering of people, look to an ordinary gathering of Christian believers in a local church. Do that. Which, if that's the case, how is it possible that we are so bored with church? You want to know why? Because we have been trained to believe you have to feel something in order for it to be true. Instead of, thus saith the Lord. The Lord says it. You are the assembly of the living God, God's presence with his people. What makes the church unique amongst all the other groups that meet out in the world, religious and non, is that God meets with his church. God is present in the church. You're like, but I don't feel anything. Who says it's about feeling? It's true. He's revealed it. He's spoken into existence. Maybe the gauge that you're using to determine whether or not there's something here, the feels, isn't actually how you're supposed to engage. Maybe you have to get off of the worldly mentality that you just brought into your Christian faith, and you need to get over to worldly lenses off, scriptural ones on. And then stick around for a while, like in a place, a local church, and grow for like years somewhere. 
to see the fruit of that consistency over and over and over to watch God slowly, like a flower, cause this place to blossom. Cause every one of us to grow in all the ways that God would have for us. I'm telling you, if we got this, if we sense that this is the place where God's presence is, we are the people in whom God's presence dwells. When we gather together, there is something very unique about that. We are God's display to a watching world. We are God's display to the angels that they might know the wisdom of God because of what we do in this place. They don't know the plan of redemption without us showing it off. They don't know the power of the gospel without seeing it in his church. This is the product of that great plan that the angels long to look into. Heads just exploded. Then he says this. He finishes in this way. He says, the other description of our identity that informs our activity is we're the family of God. So we, we look like that, right? Our activity looks like that. There's elders in the church, right? That kind of occupy and act as fathers in that sense. We're to treat one another in a certain way. We've got that family dynamic. The church is God's assembly. There, there's a necessity to the gathering, to the meeting together, to God's presence among his people that is distinctly different, that if we are not the ones gathering, there's no expectation that that would be found anywhere else, though, of course, God's finding us in all kinds of places, to be sure. But then this... He says, the church as the pillar and foundation of the truth. That is our identity. The church as the pillar and foundation of the truth. Man, if we could get this, we would be in business. Now we're getting to family responsibility here. We're getting to family duty and he leverages another architectural metaphor. You'll see it. We've already talked about the household of God. But then he says this, he says, if you want to know what the church is responsible for, and man, isn't this a question? I, I don't know if most people would be able to answer this question. What, what's the church supposed to do? I think the church has been stressing itself out for years and years trying to keep up with things it's not required to do. I think pastors are burning out like crazy because they are trying to meet expectations that aren't actually required of them in the scriptures. And it's so encouraging to finally be set free from all the voices versus the voice that matters. So watch this. We are, according to this text, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul is writing these things to them so they behave a certain way in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now when they heard that, you have to understand that echoing in their ears and flooding their minds was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world smack dab in the middle of their city. You could not have been in Ephesian without seeing this on a daily basis. I want to just show you the temple. The temple of Artemis is on both of your screens. This was a monstrous, and it's a re there's a reason that it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was... Um, an amazing piece of architecture. It had massive buttressed bulwarking foundations laid on the bottom and rising up to support this heavy structure of a roof was 127 pillars that were 60 feet high and six feet in width. 
127 of them. And each one of those was a gift given from a king. And each one of those pillars was a tribute to the one it represented. And to get to their church where the saints were gathered, they walked past that to somewhere not nearly as cool on the outside. Are you with me on this? They walked by the architecture of that, and they'll take, frankly, anywhere they could meet. Are we tracking? So architecturally speaking, when they gathered in a place together, it didn't look that pretty. But yet, what was going on amongst the gathering of those people, Paul transitions capturing the imagery of what they would have walked by every single day. And he transitions to the church and says, by architectural comparison, there just wasn't anything to write home about. But you, church, are the pillars and the foundation of the truth. That objective body of doctrine found in our scriptures, found in the writings of the Bible. That truth, which is so perfectly summarized in our Christmas Eve text, he was vindicated in the flesh, he was, excuse me, manifested in the flesh, that's Jesus, that's his incarnation. He was vindicated by the Spirit in his resurrection, he was seen by angels. Then he ascended and he was proclaimed among the nations. He was believed on in the world. He was taken up in glory. The very gospel that we believe and all the truths therein that are from the gospel, its effects written in the New Testament, that totality, that body of truth is what the church is responsible for. It is not the job of seminaries. It is not the job ultimately of parachurch ministries. It is not the job ultimately of publishers. It is not ultimately the job of TBN to do this job. It is the local church's job to exist to uphold the truth. We are to uphold it and to put it on display for the world to see. The phraseology here of pillars and buttress, a pillar's pretty straightforward, you see it. And it would uphold the structure, and a buttress is like a, a, a protection. It's like a, it, some think it's a foundation. But it's meant so you could put something like that up on display, so there's a protection aspect, there's a display aspect. This is our responsibility. Now here's where the problem is in the 21st century. I read a book recently called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Have you guys heard of that book? So, it's a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman, and in it, he talks about this move, this shift, toward the end of the 19th century, away from what he called the age of exposition, into what he said was gradually being replaced by the age of show business. And he says, you could see it in the church, all of a sudden, substance was trumping, uh, style, excuse me, was trumping substance, that entertainment was trumping truth. That you no longer had churches that were pressing one another in the upholding of the truth. Like when someone was to drop the bar or compromise on something, it was the church's job to rally around and say, hey brother, here's what the word says. Repent of that teaching and teach the word. Well now when we do that, everyone goes, whoo, you're uber Christian. Wow, that's intense. Oh, you're that kind of person. Or, or even worse, how divisive. That's the world we live in. We are not supposed to talk bad about anyone. Listen, 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 listen. That, that, that is only kind of barely true. 
We're supposed to be kind to one another, yes, but when we have a responsibility to uphold the truth of God's word, if the shoe fits on something you're off on, you should wear it, consider it, repent of it, and change. That needs to be the responsibility of every church. And technically, as local churches, though we do ministry in different places, we're all to press one another in that. See, we got away from that. We don't press one another at all. We'd rather be after unity that is regardless of truth. Have a bunch of people where it's like, oh, we can agree to disagree. Are there some things to agree to disagree on? Of course there are. Are there things that we shouldn't be dogmatic on? Yes, but there are other things that all of a sudden we get way, way off where we should be as the church. And instead of that, we spend all of our time, he's talking about this, one-upping each other on our entertainment. How are we going to draw? How are we going to pull? How are we going to get you in here? Listen, if we don't hold up the truth without that, you can have church on your name, but you are not a church. You are a social club if you don't hold up the truth of God's word. I'm telling you that right now. And here's the other thing that terrifies me. It can also start very well and not finish that way. Because what happens is when you start a church, it's like, hey, we don't have much, so I guess we'll just teach the Bible. (laughs) Have you seen it? It's like they're so desperate. Ugh, sorry about this, but I guess we'll open God's word. And then later on, it's like, well, we got more money, we got more stuff, and so here it is. You proud of me? I mean, God? This will never change in our church. Never change. Never change. You want to know why it won't change? Because it's convictional. Because it's convictional. It won't change because it's convictional. It's not what the trend is. It's not what's popular or not popular. I take my authority from the word of God. Paul tells Timothy, you preach the word in season and out of season. That is all the time. There's only two times. You're in season or you're out of it. You preach it all the time when it's popular and when it's not. Doesn't mean we're going to get it all right. We are not going to get it all right. But the best way, so that's the other thing too, is, oh, you guys think you're all right about everything. Please. I don't, and I live with the horror of screwing up things I say up here. I'm trying to do my absolute best to get the text right so that the minimal amount of me screwing up comes out. And if I do that work, then we'll have less. And listen, 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 we should be growing as a church. If we're off on something, the word is the authority. Show us and we'll move. But there may be some things that we get shown that are not biblical, And those things need to be called out. Well, listen, listen, listen. This is so important for the church. And I will tell you this. Good motives, no doubt, lie behind this push to be more entertainment-oriented. I will say that. It's good motives, you guys. These aren't wicked people that are trying to, like, they stress themselves out going, what are we going to do this year? We got to do something bigger. We got to do something better. We got to do something. I, I, I get it. And it's for the community, and it's for the lost, and it's for these things. And and here's the thing. Here's the simplicity of it. You have a role, church. Play that role. Do it well. Make it the thing you're actually proud of, not the thing you'll get over once we have more stuff. This has to be it. So I don't want us to see like, oh, oh, Doxa is the best church. It's not it. We just want to be a faithful church. When did that change? We can agree to disagree on some things, but when did it change that we just need to preach what's here regardless of what we see? So we, we got our work cut out for us. We got to be this, guys. 
But it doesn't happen outside of an identity in Jesus Christ. We are God's family, saved by the wrath, uh, wrath of God, ushered into his presence, given the right to become children of God, and we are assemblies. We, this is an assembly of called out ones, the living God's church. And it is our responsibility not only to uphold the truth, but to uphold the truth in a way that is shown to the world. It's one thing to not uphold the truth, teach something false. It's another thing to uphold the truth and not do it in our lives. We have to avoid both errors. And we can feel bad about ourselves, like we're going to screw this up. So, so, so that's why we have the gospel, <laughs> Right? You're going to screw up relationships. I, I talked to you about that in a sermon in the past, right? We're going to have to walk through that. The gospel gives us grace. We're going to screw up as a church. The gospel is going to give us grace. And we find that grace, interestingly, in the same way we find it here, which is go back to your identity. See, when we come to the table, we're reminded afresh of our identity. So we often think of the table as Jesus worked for us, you know, his body broken, his blood shed, do this as often as you do in remembrance of me, right? His work on the cross, and that's true. But what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross was he purchased the people for himself. And we are supposed to commune with one another in that process. We are supposed to come to the table knowing that everything we need to be the kind of church by God's grace, not a perfect one, but directionally pursuing that which God wants us to do, we have all the grace we need found at the table where collectively we gather together as God's people. And we celebrate the same drink and the same bread. Why? Because there is no distinction at the foot of the cross. We all stand on level ground with joy because of what Jesus has done. So I want to see a little get up in the step today as you come and take this meal. This is not a somber meal. This is also our identity meal. This is a reminder that we are the family of God. And so when I say this, I'm not meaning to exclude a non-believer, but if you're here and you don't believe in Jesus, here's my encouragement. Come to, to trust in Jesus. Trust in him. Put your faith in Jesus. Don't worry about the table right now. That'll come. Focus on Jesus. Get Jesus down. Get a relationship with him. Sorry, how, how do I do that? Call out to God. Have mercy on me, a sinner. God will take that. He'll run with it. No manipulation. No singing a song over and over and over and over and over again until you cry. Why, 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 why? Because salvation is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And we will see it in your life, not in how many people come down and raise their hand, fall on their knees, sob hysterically, all that stuff. Do tears come when people get saved? Of course. Is that a for sure sign that anyone got saved? No. And I think for too long we've made that seem that way. I'm just going, by the way. This is just on my heart. So we come to the table. If you're in Christ, if you're in good standing of a local church, come and celebrate with the saints. Come and celebrate. This is our identity. Your sin has been washed by the blood of Jesus. His body broken for you. His blood shed for you. So that as we walk in our Christian life, as discouraged, as tired, as frantic, as lost as we may sometimes be, we come back to the table. Remember, this is the foundation.
It's where it starts and it, where it's where it ends. So I'm going to invite you. Why don't you come up? Why don't you grab the cup, grab the bread there, double cupped, so you're good. And then Pastor Ben will lead us in a time after a song.